Wow, we really are full. Um, so we have some people in the balcony. Fantastic, you made your way. Welcome, all those joining us online, welcome to you as well. Um, can we give another round of applause to our kids? You guys are amazing. Connor, you killed it. Uh, Mary and Joseph, you're amazing. And all of the animals, you guys are incredible. Uh, I've got opportunities here. We've got like little places that I can stand if I want to be a sheep or a goat. Kind of cool. Um, but let me start by just saying again, Merry Christmas. And I've got just some wonderful news for you. You made it. I call it like the Christmas Marathon Sprint. From December 1st to right now, December 24th, you made it. You got your lights up on your house. You bought a tree. You got the tree decorated. You decorated Christmas cookies. You made it through all of the work parties and having friends and family over. You went out shopping, and you filled the stocking, and you got the gifts, and the gifts are wrapped, and the food is planned, and it's probably already half-cooked. Friends, you've made it. Congratulations. And the good news is, if you didn't quite make it, if you still have some of that undone, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. Right now, you just got to let it go. And so now we just get to sit back and enjoy celebrating, don't we? Our favorite part of the Christmas story, or the Christmas celebration, I know that you have them. Maybe it's uh, certain gifts given or certain gifts received. Maybe it's a certain food that is made, and every time you smell it, you touch it, you taste it, it just brings you back to every Christmas that you've enjoyed since your childhood. Or maybe for you, the best part of your celebration is really who is around your table or who's around your tree. You know, for me, I have two things as I thought about it that are my favorite things in celebrating Christmas. Every year after this service, we'll go to my parents' house and they'll put on this great spread of food that I had to do nothing to receive. It's like the good news of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ in food form on a table, and I love it. And one of the traditions we have is that each kid gets to open up one gift. Does anybody else do that? You get to open one gift on Christmas Eve. It's like the Christmas Eve teaser, right? You're like, ooh, this is great. One is better than zero, but I would like all seven that I see under the tree. And I think I love it because it builds anticipation of the celebration that's going to happen tomorrow. And here's my other second favorite Christmas uh, celebration that we do in our house. Every year we put the kids on strict order. Don't wake us up before seven. Mom and dad, do not get out of bed at before seven o'clock. Everybody's up, they're, they're wanting to come downstairs. We kind of make our kids stay upstairs. We put this like barricade on the stairs saying you're not allowed down and we get everything ready. And then I take out my camera, and I film our kids running down the stairs. And I have a shot for you of a picture that was from a few years ago. That's Emery and Garrison. Bella, my oldest, is kind of making her way down slowly. She didn't even make the photo. But what I love is just the excitement and the joy and the, like, I pull, like, the sister back so I can be first. Because Christmas is so fun to celebrate, is it not? Just the anticipation of it gets us excited. But what if our Christmas celebrations 
are more about how we respond to Christmas than they are actually what happens to us. Let me rephrase that. What if a meaningful Christmas celebration has more to do with our attitudes and responses of Christmas than they do the things that we do or the traditions we have or the gifts that you and I receive. And I think as we look into it this afternoon, we look into the first Christmas, the day that our Savior Jesus was born. There's this wonderful, joyful celebration as it should be. But what brought kind of challenge and growth to my life this year for this season was this reality that as I read through the story, I realized that everybody who participated in this first Christmas, yes, they were filled with anticipation. Yes, they were joyful. Yes, they celebrated. But that celebration moved beyond the day. See, there were people who gathered in joy, but then they also went in joy. And so what I'd like to do with our time this evening is we look into this important, well-known story of the birth of Jesus, is to ask ourselves, can we, like them, move beyond just a wonderful, joyful celebration tomorrow that is meaningful and purposeful? Yes. But the true meaning of Christmas goes beyond that. Can we be people together that move beyond our great celebrations tomorrow into a space where we would allow God to transform us, to actually grow us? Because that is what we see as we look at the responses in the first Christmas. And so if you'll allow me, I'd like to take us into those responses and look at them together because I believe that as we do that, as we look into that, we're going to be invited into very divine moments to move our Christmas celebration from one that's just a joyful celebration to actual life transformation as we enjoy a relationship with the living God through his son Jesus. So to that end, can I pray for us and then we'll jump in together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Father, how fun it is to worship together. Lord, we know we're enduring masks and Omicron and everything that's taking place, but Lord, nothing can stop the good news of what we have to celebrate tomorrow. And so Lord, we pray that you would fill our homes, our apartments with joy that you would fill our celebrations with laughter and fun. And that, Father, you would take each one of us and move us and grow us as your children. God, we thank you that you have come. Lord, do your work in the time that we have together. That each one of us might hear something from you, receive something from you, be touched by you. And the good news of your son, Jesus. To this we pray, Lord. Amen. So we begin the story in Luke chapter 2. And the first idea that I'd like to put in front of you to help you move from a joyful celebration to something that the first Christmas would actually change your life is are you willing to stand in awe of the incarnation? For the children in the room, that means, are you willing to stand in amazement that Jesus came down and was born? Because what's really fascinating as you look into the birth pronouncements, they're filled with awe and wonder. 
Right? Let's take a look together. We'll first look at the pronouncement for Mary out of Luke chapter 1, if you'll put that on the screens for me. This is the angel Gabriel comes to her in, in verse 28 and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then he continues on in verse 30. The angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the, the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. What? Like, that is like a pronouncement to a pre-party like I have never heard. Like, this little one that's coming is going to be the son of God, and he's going to reign over an eternal throne. Look at the angel who comes to Joseph in the announcement of the birth that is to come out of Matthew chapter 1, if you'll put that on the side screens for me. It says, but after this, this is talking about Joseph, who was considering uh, uh, divorcing Mary uh, quietly to save her the shame, thinking that she had been unfaithful in her pregnancy. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So this announcements go out that God, from heaven on high, is up to something really special. This Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. And he goes on and he gives them the quote out of Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a, a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's this pronouncement that God from heaven is coming to earth. And it's exciting, and it's amazing. And then you and I turn to the birth narrative, and it seems so unamazing. Like the birth announcement's like, wow, God's up to something. And then we read the birth narrative, and we're like, wait, what? Like, this is just so natural, so normal, so unassuming, so unamazing. Look with me. It says, the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, which is the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and they were expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Like, do you see the juxtaposition? Like these two pronouncements, God's going to do something incredible. I don't know, backwoods of Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph just having a baby. No room for them in the house, so they're going to have this baby in a stable. We have to ask ourselves, why the juxtaposition? Why the difference? Why this great heavenly pronouncement of what is to come, and then the actual birth takes place, and it's so unamazing, so unassuming. And I think the reality is that God is showing something about his kingdom, the lowliness, the humility. Every angle you and I attempt to look at the story, we see it wrapped in regularity. Think about Joseph and Mary. They're, they're Israelite parents. 
Israel has been conquered for the last 700 years by five different rulers. Rome is just the latest in this long line of them being a conquered people. That's how it opens up in verse 1 and 2 that Caesar Augustus, who ruled them, decided, hey, let's take a census, which is code for let's count how many people we have so we can tax them more heavily. That's what Jesus is born into. And he's born to Mary and Joseph, two teenagers from Galilee. Now, Galilee is not Jerusalem. It's like the um, Lone Pine of California. You ever drive the 395 going up to Mammoth? Remember driving through Lone Pine and thinking to yourself, who lives here full time? (laughs) Right? I've met one person in my life who was from Lone Pine. You should have seen my eyes. It was like the birth announcement from Angel Gabriel. I'm like, what? You live in Lone Pine? Like, really? Yeah, Mary and Joseph are from Galilee. It's not even the major city of the backwoods of Israel. That's that's where they're from. Mary is most likely 13 years old. She's got no power, no position, and no privilege. Would you expect the son of the Most High God to be born to a 13-year-old girl out of wedlock? At least that's how people are going to look at it. See, you can't get any more low or normal. It's so unassuming. I love the artwork if you followed the advent that we were encouraging you to be part of. Patty Wickman had this great art piece called Overshadowed. And if you'll put that picture on the side screen for me, that that just really did something for me this year. Because you and I read the story, if you've been around church for a long time, you know the story of Mary and Joseph, and you know they traveled to Bethlehem, and you know there's a star, and wise men show up later, and Matthew, and all of those stories. But she puts Mary in kind of common current day 13-year-old vision. Disheveled room. I so desperately as a dad want to go and close those drawers, right? Like just close. Can we just clean a little bit? But it gives you a picture of the lack of power and prestige and nobility that Mary would have had. And yet that's who Jesus comes to. That's who God chooses, that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would bear the Savior of the world. So he's born in a stable and he's laid in a manger, which is a really nice word for saying animal feeding trough. See, I would expect God, the Son of God, to be born in a palace with wealth and privilege. And instead, he's born into powerlessness and poverty. Okay, so you're tracking with me here. Okay, Garrick, I understand. He's born in a lowly position. His birth narrative is unassuming and it's unamazing. But then you begin to look at it from a heavenly lens and you begin to see the radical nature of this whole thing of Jesus coming down and being born. John chapter 1 talks about the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, come and taking on flesh. See, he comes from a heavenly throne to an animal feeding trough. If you'll put up for me Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. This is a great picture. This is a picture of Jesus ascended on the throne, and the verses before say there's thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands angels worshiping Jesus and saying this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
thousands upon thousands of angels saying this again and again. The lamb is worthy. The lamb is worthy of adoration, honor, and praise, and glory. That's where Jesus was before he came down and took on flesh. He gave up his divine sovereignty to take on the limitations of flesh. That's, I'm not going to have us turn there, but Philippians 2, 6 through 8, gives us this great picture. And the language there is that Jesus made himself nothing. That he self-emptied himself. That he emptied himself. That he didn't grasp onto his divine nature, but released it and took on the limitations of flesh. He left glory to enter utter normalcy. Three times in this passage, we're told that Jesus is laid in an animal feeding trough. So then, here's the big question. Why? Why these tremendous birth announcements? Why this reality that Jesus, who is in heaven being worshipped, would come down and incarnate, take on flesh as this helpless baby you know, just kind of pudgy cheeks and unable to do anything for himself, why would he take on such limitation? And the answer is simple, simply this. Jesus left the treasures of heaven because he values you. And in fact, maybe this is better put, that Jesus treasures you more than the treasures of heaven. The message of Christmas that we're celebrating when we say Jesus came down as a little baby, the savior of the world, what we're communicating is that for you, Jesus loved you so much that he would give up the treasures of heaven and that he would come down and be Emmanuel, God with us, and walk with you because he treasures you more than the treasures of heaven. And friends, I don't know about you, but for myself, I need that constant reminder because this world and its values have a way of continually attacking my understanding of the reality that Jesus loves me so much that he values me more than the throne of heaven that he would come down on my behalf. Because this world is constantly telling you your value is attached to what you do. Your value is attached to what you produce. Your value is attached to the talents you have. Your value is attached to the number of likes or hearts or responses or retweets that you can get in this life. And where that leaves you and I is eventually it doesn't matter the arc of your life. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in this room and you're a teenager. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in this room and you're 80 years old. Life is dynamic and all the time we are asking ourselves, do I matter? Am I valuable? What if I'm in my golden years and my greatest years of production are behind me? Do I still carry the same amount of worth and value? If you're young and sitting in this room, you're thinking, I haven't done anything yet other than make it through half of high school. Am I valuable? See, it doesn't matter your, your relational status, your roommate status, your marital status. It doesn't matter your age, if you're young, if you're old. It doesn't matter if you have great talents and everybody knows you and sees you. It doesn't matter if nobody knows you and you're unrecognizable. The message of Christmas is Jesus saying, once for all, you are mine and you are valuable because you bear a soul. And all of this came for me as I was thinking about this line that we're gonna sing after this message, O Holy Night. Listen up. 
O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, till Jesus appeared, till the Logos appeared, till Jesus, the Christ child, appeared. And what? And the soul felt its worth. See, friends, what we're really celebrating here this Christmas Eve is Jesus coming down, yes. And it's reminding us of the great value that you and I have because we bear God's image in our souls, that we have been uniquely crafted and created by him, and he is Emmanuel, and he knows us, and he walks with us. We are so valuable to him. So on those days when we think to ourselves, have I done enough? Am I enough? Am I valuable enough? This day reminds us, yes. Yes, you are. Friends, that's what it looks like to stand in awe of the incarnation to say that Jesus came down reveals the reality of my great worth to God. And if you want to move your Christmas celebration from something a joyful day to a lifelong journey of joy with Christ, it begins with standing in awe of the incarnation of Jesus and what that means about your value. And then it moves us into a place of can we treasure the Messiah? Can we treasure Jesus? Because you and I know what's true. We say, yeah, okay, Garrick, I'm with you. I'm extremely valuable to God. But if you're like me, you recognize, wow, you're, you're, you're putting me up on this kind of like God's pedestal that I'm his beloved child and that I'm a 10. Like we run around this world and we assign value to people. You're a two, you're a five, you're a seven, depend on what you can do for me. And God's running around saying 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Isn't that great? And so you go, okay, I've received that. But then you know the reality of like, yeah, but if we're honest, like my life's a mess. Like God might say I'm a 10, but I never feel like a 10. I mean, meet his holy standards. I don't even meet my own standards. And we talk about this at Coastline all the time. We are a broken and bent people. Scripture calls that sin, the way that we miss God's holy perfection. When I say broken, it means that we tend to break things, you know, even when we're not trying. We break people that we love, we break situations, we speak harsh words and, and hurt people. When I say bent, I'm this reality that, that we just continue moving forward in hurting people even when we're not trying. And sometimes we're trying. What, what do we do with that discrepancy, that, that difference? Scripture calls it a sin. It's a disease in our soul we can't cure and a stain on our spirit you and I can't remove. And if we look at our world and we look at our thoughts and we look at our desires and we look at our actions, you and I know, man, Jesus calls me a 10. I feel like a three. What do we do with that? Most of the time, I think we take this discrepancy, this difference, and we hide from it and we try to hide it from others. But the good news of Christmas is that Christ has come. He said, Garrick and everybody else, you bear my image in your soul. You are a 10. You can come out from hiding because I'm going to make a way. Look with me. What does it look like to treasure this Savior? Look with me in verse 8. I'm going to read 8 all the way through 20. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, what? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared when the, uh, with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying where? In a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And here we get these three amazing responses. And they all, all who heard it, talking about the story of Jesus and his birth, were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things that they had heard and seen, which you just have been told. So the people who the shepherds told the story to were amazed. Can we stand in amazement at the incarnation? And then we're told in verse 19 that Mary treasures up all of these things and she begins to ponder them. The language there is, I value what's happening here so much that I'm gonna pause for a moment and really think deeply about what is happening and what it means. And I believe what she's deeply pondering is the truth out of verse 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. In the original language there, that's really a savior that has been born for you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So this discrepancy we have between God saying, you're a 10, and Garrick, I feel like a three. What do we do with that? We can't do anything about that, but God in his son Jesus does everything about that. He says, I'm going to send for you, for your advantage, to personally bring you a savior. I love what Paul does with this. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20, Paul writes this, talking about this language here of having a savior for us. He says, talking about Jesus, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, talking about Jesus, dwell in him. So all the fullness of God is going to dwell in this Christ child, this little ball of baby. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, God is the one who says, yep, I've made you a 10, you feel like a three, and I am the one who's going to reconcile that reality. And I'm going to do it by having this baby Jesus, this Christ child, grow up, live a life of ministry, and die as a sacrifice on the cross. As Paul said, to be the blood that covers the iniquity or the difference between how you and I feel as a 10 or a three. That God is the one who does what's called the covering. In theological language, it's called the atonement. See, whenever you're trying to reconcile two people who are struggling or in a fight, parents, like when your kids are fighting, 
or maybe you're fighting with somebody you work with. There's always difference, right? There's always struggle. There's always tension. There's always hurt and pain. And you can't just go to two people who are warring against each other and be like, it's Christmas. Just stop it. Just stop. Just start loving each other. Like there has to be a covering over all of those hurts and the difference. And that covering, according to Scripture, is this Christ child, Jesus, and the death that he's going to die on the cross to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. So Mary treasures this Savior, and it's hard. Can we be honest for a moment? It's just hard sometimes to treasure Jesus. For some of you, you come in a few times a year to church, and man, Jesus for you is more a symbol than a Savior. And what I mean by that is you're so used to having Jesus in the manger. You know, he fits ni nicely and neatly in the manger. He's this little baby. He's not causing any problems. He's not creating any waves. And it's just so easy to just leave him there as a relic, as a symbol of a day gone by. He has no bearing on my life now. If that is where you're at today, may I implore you to just simply start reading through the Gospels. Start with the Gospel of John and really see, is your understanding of this little baby Jesus who is trapped in a nativity scene of your life, does it really fit the living Jesus, the Son of God? Because I guarantee you, as you read into Scripture, you begin to see and realize, whoa, I just almost called Jesus bro. Can I do that? Like this bro, he's baffling. I still read it and I'm like, wait, you don't really mean that, do you? Because if you do, then my life's got to shift yet again. So don't allow Jesus to be a relic in your nativity scene of your heart. He's so much more than that. He's amazing. He's baffling. He's engaging. He's welcoming. He's someone worth knowing. Sometimes it's hard to treasure Jesus for those of us that have walked with him for a while because here's another truth about this baby Jesus who's going to grow up and be this man and savior of the world. Jesus is disruptive. Isn't that true? Like Jesus is just disruptive. Like just put Jesus as a baby in this narrative. His birth is disruptive to Mary. Like, everybody's like, mm-hmm, you're pregnant. Because the Holy Spirit overshadowed you. Yeah. Joseph, who's like, oh, I love you, I want to marry you, we're betrothed, I'm so excited, and now I've got to divorce you quietly until the angel comes. He disrupts the shepherds who are out just doing their thing in the fields. He disrupts the disciples who were once fishermen. He disrupts the poor and the lame and the blind as he won't leave them in their current condition. He disrupts the religious leaders. He disrupts Rome to the extent that they put him on a cross and crucify him. Friends, Jesus is disruptive. He's been disruptive in my life. You know what my plan was for my life? I was going to be a high school history and economics teacher. Is there anything better than that? I get to work with people, and I get every entire summer until I go home to meet Jesus off. Can we get an amen to that Garrick plan? 
that was my plan. And then I woke up one morning and that plan was annihilated and I went and I sought the Lord in prayer and he's like, I'm gonna call you into this thing called ministry and you're gonna be a pastor. And I said, fine, as long as you don't make me preach on Sundays. (laughs) Jesus' plan is disruptive and it's disruptive in your life. And so sometimes, friends, as we celebrate this baby Jesus, we wanna leave him in the manger but he is a savior who's come for your benefit and he wants to utterly disrupt your life because he wants to wake you up to God and remind you that you're not just somebody living on this spinning earth because you're supposed to consume things so that our companies can make more money. You are the soul that God has created and according to Ephesians 2.10, he's got good works for you to do so that according to John 15.8, you can bear great fruit to the glory of the Father. The only thing that I can promise you if you're willing to say, I'm all in, I'm gonna follow you, is that you won't get the plan that you think you're gonna get. But here's what I can promise you from the biblical witness and my own personal experience. It'll be joyful. Because his disruption, although it's different and it's nuanced and it's not what you're expecting, he fills it with meaning and he fills it with joy. Because that's what we see here in this story. That God will fill our lives with great joy if we're willing to follow him. So Jesus disrupts our lives. He disrupts it to show our value, to wake us up to God, and to turn our hearts away from ourselves toward him and others. Friends, that's what makes a meaningful Christmas. And then finally this, in that last verse, says the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. Can you stand in awe of the incarnation and God's once for all stamp of your eternal worth? Can you treasure this Jesus who's coming in to wake you up to God and disrupt your plan and replace it with God's plan for your life? And can you praise God with your life? Maybe a better word than to glorify God or to praise God is can you allow your life to magnify Jesus. Think about a magnifying glass or a magnifying lens. What does it do? It makes something bigger, right? To magnify Jesus with your life means that you do something in your life that makes Jesus big. Big in your life so the people around you can see that he's somebody who has something to say. He's somebody who's worth following. Can we magnify this Jesus, the Christ child, together. You know, this week I got the experience several times of just seeing you, coastliners, walking with God and Jesus in such a way that it magnified God's presence in my life. I was talking to one coastliner who was telling me like, man, I just want to live frugally so that I have more to give to God's kingdom. Man, that's magnifying Jesus. There was somebody else that I was talking to that was getting ready to go to a worship experience and they were talking about their love for worshiping God, the reason why we come up and we sing songs up here. And it reminded me, that's right, Garrick, 
Continue to worship and sing with all that you are because God is worth it. And if I could just highlight them for a moment, they may not like this, but Chris and Val, who I've just gotten to know at Coastline, I was watching them schlep round tables up the stairs from the fellowship hall, 13 of them to get them out on the patio so that you and I could have a sit-down Christmas party. It's amazing. First of all, it's a little dangerous. I'm a little concerned for you, but your willingness to be Jesus' Sherpa, if you will, and to like just, hey, man, we got tables coming. It magnified the reality that this Christ child Jesus was worth my worship and was worth my life. So brothers and sisters, friends and family, as you move into your joyful Christmas celebrations, may they be filled with joy and laughter and fun. But may you ask yourself this Christmas, can I stand in awe of the incarnation? Can I treasure Jesus my Savior? And can I magnify God with my life? And if I respond in that manner, I'm moving from a day celebration to a life that celebrates that the Son has come in the Christ child. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, for any brothers and sisters who are here tonight that, if they're honest with themselves, have left you as a relic, as a symbol, a piece of plastic, a piece of clay, as part of a manger scene. Lord, we pray that you would enliven them, that you would inspire them to take the challenge to look into your word and to begin to read the Gospel of John. We pray, Lord, that you would inspire them to come back and to continue to listen to all that Jesus has for his people. And Father, for those of us that are celebrating yet another joyful Christmas, God, remind us of our eternal worth to you. And we feel the difference because we know who we are. May it fall afresh in our minds and our hearts, this truth that we have been covered by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. That a Savior truly was born for us. That, Father, we might go from this place and worship you, not just with our words, but our entire life that the South Bay and the rest of the world might know that those at Coastline believe that good news has happened. A joyful message has rung out that our Emmanuel, God with us, has come. In your name we pray. Amen.